In ancient times, the land lay covered in forests, where from ages long past dwelt the spirits of the gods. Back then, man and beast lived in harmony, but as time went by, most of the great forests were destroyed. Those that remained were guarded by gigantic beasts who owed their allegiance to the great forest spirit. For those were the days of gods and of demons. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Review of Princess Mononoke. What do you plan to do? What exactly are you here for? To see with eyes unclouded by hate. Hosted by Marjorie, Jacob, and Stuart. They are really something. They'll fight forest gods or samurai. It doesn't matter to them. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Even if every one of us dies, it will be a battle the humans will never forget. Today we're discussing Princess Mononoke, starring Billy Crudup, Minnie Driver, Claire Danes, and Billy Bob Thornton. Directed by Hayao Miyazaki. I'm Marjorie, and I'm going to show you how to kill a god. Stuart in L.A.? You may be fighting, Marjorie, because I am the nameless god of rage and hate. <laughs> but you can call me Jacob. <laughs> so here we are in a realm that, well, we do it every now and then. It's not totally unprecedented, but an animated film. Hear it now playing. Yeah, but Stuart, you've often talked about Akira and how you like Japanimation. Here we are with a Japanese film, a Studio Ghibli film. Yes. Hayao Miyazaki, often referred to here in this country anyway, as the Walt Disney of Japan. Not so much because his style is like Walt Disney, but because his movies are as popular in Japan as Walt Disney movies are here in America. And this was the movie that was supposed to break him in with Western audiences. They bet big on Princess Mononoke that this would be a phenomenon here in the States. I saw this in movie theaters, guys. Wow, I remember this coming over. I remember my dad like making a big deal of it. He's like, you got to check this out. It's yeah, it's a cartoon, but it's so adult and violent. And this is he used that. He's like, this is like the Walt Disney of Japan. And like, I remember trying to watch it and I watched like 10 minutes of it. I'm like, "Mm, okay, moving on. And then I ended up in college working with some people that really were into anime and, you know, I never got into tentacle porn, but I checked out, like, Trigun, and I was into Cowboy Bebop. And then they started talking about Miyazaki, and I'm like, okay, maybe I'll, I'll give these a chance again, because they were talking so highly of this. And I think Spirited Away may have been out by that time, but this Princess Mononoke is the first Miyazaki film I did sit down and watch. And this is actually my first feature-length anime movie I've seen. Wow. Yeah, I've never seen an anime movie. I, When I was younger, I did love Speed Racer, so I kind of am used to the style. And this reminded me very much of Speed Racer with the eyes and the style. Is. They move a little more in this one. There's facial expression on these characters. But yeah. yes, there are stylistic things that define Japanese animation. I can see a correlation. And occasionally I do see anime stuff at the conventions I go to, but I've never actually sat down and watched an anime movie. So this was like a big new experience for me. 
Uh, you know what? My gateway drug was early. I think I was in seventh or eighth grade, and yeah, Akira was the one that broke for me. And I do like anime. I do go back every now and then. I, I had a friend at one point that sort of tipped me off on the big ones to see, so I had an education. I saw the ones you were supposed to see in the original language. Miyazaki, I did come to late. I don't think that I saw any of his work until maybe Kiki's Delivery Service was the first one. One that I saw. And I didn't continue to watch his films because to me that one was very childlike. It felt like something that was made for younger audiences. And what I liked about Japanese animation is that they could be violent and adult and sophisticated. And so I just dismissed Hayao Miyazaki's work as being too juvenile. And then I went to the movie theater and saw this movie and realized, oh, yeah, no, this is not for kids. <laughs> yeah. You must have seen a bootleg of Kiki's Delivery Service. I remember, I think all of his stuff is available in the U.S. now, but I remember going to, there's these stores that specialize like in Japanese goods, and they'd always have, they were just the Japanese version. You had to speak Japanese. There's no English subtitles. But if you wanted to get the Miyazaki, the Studio Ghibli films, I kind of equate the two, but not every Studio Ghibli film is done by Miyazaki. But that that's how you had to get them. But I've seen, yeah, I've seen a handful of them, and I think they do run the gamut from very childlike but my neighbor Totoro and Ponyo that that voice on Ponyo that English dub on Ponyo (laughs) it is I've been told that if I watch it in the original language I'll like it but that is my least favorite Miyazaki movie yeah I hated that movie actually I'll use that word that's the only time I would use the word hated describing his work (laughs) but I hated that film that was his little mermaid attempt I think yes it's a it's a very loud uh English dub it's really good Yeah, but look, I've been showing a lot of these to my two stepdaughters lately, just building up to Princess Mononoke. They've really enjoyed the ones for kids. I don't think I would show them this one. We'll talk about why. But, you know, then you got like Spirited Away, which won Best Picture in Japan. No, won Best Picture here, Best Animated Feature. It won the Oscar. Yeah, we got Best Animated Feature here because we just don't appreciate cartoons. Just like now playing, neither does the Academy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we see the ones that are adult-like. We saw Scanner Darkly. We saw The Lord of the Rings. So it fits that we would cover an animated movie like this. And I think we're going to be doing another one. Arnie told me on the DC retrospective in a couple weeks. So Okay, interesting. It's not outside of our purview, but it is limited. We're not big on this. So forgive yeah. us for the anime fans that know a lot about Miyazaki and this genre. We're doing the primer course. We're dipping our toe. Like I said, I've watched a handful of these. I I would say Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind is probably my favorite. And I think that was the first Miyazaki full feature film based on manga he was doing. It wasn't the first. It was the second. But I do feel okay. like it was. Right, that's right. He did Lupin the Third, which was also based on a manga. Yeah. And Castle of. I forget about that one. He had been working, just to give a little bit of history, he had been working in sort of a Japanese animation factory you know, doing other people's stuff for a long time, drawing manga on the side. And then, yeah, he co-founded Studio Ghibli in the late 70s. And that's when we started to see movies that you could describe as his work, as opposed to his stuff that he helped draw. I do feel like Nausicaa was one of his mangas that it was a personal project to bring that to the screen. And very similar. I've got to say, if there's anything else in his repertoire like Princess Mononoke, I'd say that would be the one. 
Yeah, I saw a lot of similarities while I was watching this one now. Definitely. Environmental themes, a magical girl. Uh, it does feel like a warm-up. That's a lot of his films. I mean, we, we should say, unlike Disney, it's funny that he's compared to Disney, because Disney, they got their princesses. Miyazaki, females are often the stars of his show, but they are very tough. They're warriors. You know, this is called Princess Mononoke. It, it's kind of a mistitle. They try to make it kind of English, but Mononoke means like spirit or monster. So I, I guess it was about the spirit princess. <laughs> Demon, I thought. Yeah, exactly. Like Yeah, yeah. It's something like that. It doesn't quite translate. And he did want to name this the tale or the legend of Ashitaka. He did actually want to name this after the boy. Yeah, see, I think this should be called Bitch Wants to Kill You. I mean, yeah, you, you really need to understand. You know, you hear a princess movie animated, you have an entirely wrong impression yes. about what you're stepping into. Well, especially when you watch it with the Disney opening, I had no idea. I didn't read anything about what this movie was about. And you get the Disney opening with the castle. Does it? Princess Mona. Yeah. Yeah, one. yeah, because Disney distributes them in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, the version I had, and it's worth pointing out, Disney bought Miramax in the 90s. They were hesitant to put their castle on it when they first put it out. They put it out under Miramax. So it sort of sent the idea that this was an art movie. And that's the DVD I had of this. Oh, no, the DVD I have is full-on Disney DVD with the Cinderella's castle. Oh, Wow. Don't yeah. do that. No, that's wrong. Yeah, no, it, it was there in the version I got from Netflix. But again, unlike Disney, Miyazaki, his females are strong. He's going to talk a lot about environmentalism, all the Studio Ghibli films. I don't know if you've seen Pompoko about t transforming raccoons that can talk, like very strong environmental film. There's a lot of moral ambiguity I find in his films, too. And I, that might just be a Japanese thing, but there, it's never bad guy versus good guy I find in his films. Very rarely are they like that. And that's what I really appreciate about Miyazaki. I've, I've seen most of his work at this point, at least once, and why I always feel like they're worth watching, even though oftentimes I feel like they're a mixed bag affair. I walk away feeling like, well, I love that part. I'm not sure about that whole, is that they are complex. They will leave you thinking about different elements. They rarely play to a simple theme and a simple idea that the villain and the hero can often be the same person. And that makes it interesting. All right. Well, Stuart, do you want to tell us what this movie's about? Princess Mononoke is set in medieval Japan, a time when the country was still predominantly covered in forests and legend foretold of gods and spirits residing alongside tribes of animals and humans. Though the landscape is beautiful, a disease is spreading throughout the ecosystem that could wipe out everything. Prince Ashitaka, voiced by Billy Crudup, first becomes aware of this plague when he slays a demon terrorizing his village. The beast, its body covered in a wriggling mass of phantom snakes, was originally a giant boar who became possessed by evil after being shot with an iron bullet. Before it dies, the boar spreads its infection to Ashitaka's arm, leaving the prince with supernatural strength that will slowly kill him unless someone lifts the curse. Ashitaka travels west to seek purification from the Great Forest Spirit, a deity who walks as a human-faced elk by day, 
but in the moonlight enlarges into a translucent giant called the Nightwalker. Does this make sense? I feel like when I'm reciting this plot, this sounds absolutely crazy. It sounds like a fever dream. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm i going to draw a lot of parallels to Lord of the Rings as we go through this. Okay. It, it is that complex. Yeah, it is. It's complex. And there are several other humans seeking the mythical god as well, though not for the same altruistic reasons. Jigo, voiced by Billy Bob Thornton, and a band of hunters want to decapitate the great forest spirit, believing the head will grant immortality and magical powers. And Jigo is collaborating with Lady Ibashi, voiced by Minnie Driver, who uses a workforce of rescued prostitutes, no joke, to make ammunition and all sorts of metallurgy in her fortress of Irontown. And finally, there is San, also known as, yes, Princess Mononoke. Although I don't think anyone ever calls her that. I think they do once in the English dub, just to get that name out there. It's the title. <laughs> yeah. Again, bitch wants to kill you. That's, that's, that's what I think about her. A human girl raised by wolves who fights to protect her tribe and all the forest spirits by leading attacks on Irontown. Ashitaka was there on the night the wild child successfully scaled the fortress wall and thwarts her attempt to assassinate Lady Ibashi. The prince is shot, escorting San out of the city, and the princess takes him to the spirit of the forest, who heals the bullet wound but does not lift his curse. Ibashi and Jigo tear down trees in an attempt to bait the great forest spirit out of hiding, and tensions escalate into an all-out war between wolves, apes, boars, and a rival clan of human samurai. Jigo successfully beheads his prized spirit, but is chased by its gooey, decapitated body, while a tidal wave of poisonous black ooze kills everything in its path. Ashitaka and San wrestle the head away from Jigo and return it to the angry forest spirit, and the creature reseeds the landscape with greenery as it dies. The cured boy vows to help Lady Ibashi rebuild Irontown into something presumably less environmentally harmful, while the misanthropic girl retreats to the forest with her animals, though San and Ashitaka plan to still date in their spare time as credits roll. I have to say bravo on that summary. As I'm watching this, I'm like, how are you going to describe the forest <laughs> god like melting and covering the land and, and this boar covered in these weird demon anime porn tentacles? Like, You know, the trick is you leave a lot of stuff out. There are so many characters and, and complications between them that I'm just like, ah, we'll talk about it when we get into the movie. I cannot put it into this plot summary. This is the basic plot. Basically, you have an all-out war between animals nature and man although but then you have man versus man as a subset of that exactly yes it, it was very confusing trying to figure out okay who am i even supposed to be rooting for other than the forest and it's important to point out too here this is a real time period this is not some fantasy world this is not outer space this is japan as it was between the 1300s and the 1500s. It's known as the Muromachi period. If, if you know Japanese history, and I really don't, uh, this is a time when it was in transition. He wanted to set it in a time when poor people and rich people were more open. They saw more of each other. There was more forest. There was less delineation between class and servitude. And it led to a lot of possibilities. And so this is why Miyazaki picked this time period. It was also the time period that guns were first introduced into the country by the Chinese. 
Yeah, and I know guns almost wiped out the samurai. Once the samurai started using guns, they just all started killing each other. Like, they had to come up with rules because technology, and and I feel like this is always a theme with a lot of Japanese film, you know, guns, the atomic bomb, like, technology ravaged Japan, and so I always feel, especially with Miyazaki, that's why you get so much about environmentalism, because technology has been so harsh to the country. And yet it's a culture that embraces technology and is always, you know, happy to innovate robots. You know, that's the thing that's different, I think, from Miyazaki and other anime artists that I've, you know, become aware of, is that so oftentimes people put on mech suits, right? And they grow into a gobot or whatever, and and then they can go... That's Robotech? Come yeah, on. And, and be a hero. I think of that as being a big theme in Japanese works, not in Miyazaki's work. You're right. And his work consists Consistently, he is much more interested in exploring nature, animal, and, and the spiritual elements of the natural earth. And I didn't look at the rating of this film, but right away, it's pretty scary. Like, I don't know if I'd even... Definitely not going to show this to the five-year-old. No, Probably no. not going to show it to the nine-year-old either. I mean, this opening with this boar covered in these... Yeah, you said demon snakes or maggots. I'm not sure what they are, but... <laughs> it was like evil worms or something. Yeah, it was... Ugh. Yeah, it's great animation, but it, it is scary stuff. Well, and I wondered the same thing, too, because, I again, I didn't look at the rating or anything, and I got to some parts i'm like oh well he just got his arm chopped off okay <laughs> yeah there are heads being popped off by arrows in this yeah. film multiple times i was surprised by that again because going on the whole princess theme in the disney opening i was like well this is not your mother's disney movie yeah this is pg-13 not even pg they really wanted the wee ones to stay home i think that was right i think this movie was marketed correctly it is for the 13 year old it is definitely not for the nine-year-old princess wannabe no, 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 not at all. And it's going to have to be for a sophisticated 13-year-old. I, I think even as an adult, I really have to pay attention to understand all the different factions going on throughout this film. I mean, opening up, we get Prince Asitaka. He's going to kill the boar. He shoots an arrow. He's going to get diseased. He finds out that there's this iron ball in there, and he's told by his tribe he's got to go to the West to find a cure, and that he's like the last prince, and this tribe, they're done for. Like They've lasted like 500 years, and now they're going to dwindle away. I, I guess that's symbolic to what's going to happen to nature in this film. And it uh, was based on the Ainu, which is a, a populace that is still in Japan, but has greatly diminished. They're white people that live in Japan, and I think they've been relegated to like a little island at this point. But they made up the name of this tribe. They call them Imishi. Uh, that's not real. But Miyazaki was thinking about a real culture that has been dying out. And so, yeah, I think it was important for him to pick the prince of this story, which arguably is the star of this movie. It maybe should have been called. And Miyazaki wanted to name it after him. Yeah, it should be. It's his story. It should have been called Tales of Ashitaka or whatever they were considering. But yeah, he represents the last of a dying breed that himself infected that I love this sequence too. It's one of my favorites. It's one of the ones I remembered about this movie. I'm like, I don't remember much about Mononoke other than there's this like boar covered in snakes that bust through a wall and you got all, he's chasing it on horse, firing arrows. And yeah, it's, it's just a great way to grab you. Not, not even on a horse. He's on an elk. It's, it's a red elk named Yakul who's his friend. They're very close. 
Yes. I like the idea that he's infected and that on one hand, it gives him great power. I think this is a way of thinking about technology. And I think it's the way Miyazaki thinks about technology. On one hand, you can do so much more with it. He'll have great strength. He'll be able to lift things and move things that he wasn't able to before. But every time he does it, he's sending that poison further and further into his bloodstream. He is literally killing himself every time he applies this technology. Yeah, and that's why the tribe, they're like, no, you got to get out of here. And I love the moment, and (laughs) this might fall deaf on a lot of western ears but that top knot he cuts that top knot off that's a big deal especially in samurai culture when you cut your top knot or if you get it cut off it's one of the most humiliating things that could happen i mean so that's a big deal when he cuts that top knot off to leave his tribe and go hopefully find a cure so he stops infecting them it's cold man i mean they're like you're dead to us forever or something like that they literally are like excommunicating him because he's been infected from an outside culture and that's Oh, I mean, they introduce something here, too, that he has this sister before he rides out. She hands him a crystal dagger. That's going to be one of the things that kind of helps out in the climax. But I thought she would play a big part. I thought at some point he would reconnect with his own tribe. But actually, nope. <laughs> this will be the last time he'll ever see this sister or any of these people. Yeah, I kind of wondered if maybe there was I was missing something because that was the end of that. Yeah. Well, one thing I know about Miyazaki's work style is sometimes he'll start a movie without finishing the script. He doesn't know exactly where it'll go, that it has an improvisational feel. I definitely feel that about this story. That part of the reason why you can't predict where it will end up is because it wasn't structured or planned to go that way. That's interesting, though. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen My Neighbor Totoro. I think that was all improvised, like, as they were drawing it, like, no bad guys, no good guys, no plot, no conflict. Like, yeah, it very improvisational feel at times. And, and I get moments here where it feels like that. Yeah. And I think that's why I always feel mixed about it. It's like, well, I like that part, but that didn't sit with me. And things are juxtaposed with each other in a strange way, which can be exciting, can be very Japanese and can just be very befuddling, I think, too. It it is not a story with a simple moral. It raises questions without ever answering them. But as... Ashitaki heads west, he runs into Samurai, and he's got this infected arm. I call it his Akira arm. If, if you've, It's not actually Akira. It's actually Tetsuo who, like, gets infected and, like, has this crazy arm in that film. I have that action figure. I don't even collect action figures, but I have that. You have one. an action figure? Wow. Yeah, no, it's awesome. Yeah, he's a big Akira fan. <laughs> yeah, it, that's a, a crazy moment in that film. Yeah, so I guess I'll call it the Tetsuo arm, this infected demon arm. You know, he's defending himself against these samurai who are attacking other tribes in the West. And that thing kind of bulges and he he shoots those arrows. Like, this is the first moment you're like, oh, okay, this is really, really PG-13 because arms are shot off, heads are shot off. Very violent. It caught my attention. See, the first part, like, they opened so strong with the Wrigley boar and the demon worms or whatever they were. And then it was kind of okay. And then all of a sudden it launched into like, holy crap, that guy's arm just got cut off. And that's when I was realized, okay, this is going to pick up a little. Yeah, no, I agree. It makes you realize that, yeah, we need to think of this sophisticated Lord of the Rings is a great go-to here where, yeah, we're on an adventure with a character who is going to have to kill, is capable of killing. But on contrast, he needs to make sure that he doesn't use that arm too often, that that it may be a temptation. Like Lord of the Rings, it's the ring. Yes, yeah, exactly. 
And we also get some comedic relief here. Or at least I think Jigo is supposed to be funny. I mean... At first, yeah. Yeah. When we get him at the start here, he's in a barter town talking about how the soup tastes like piss or something like that. Yeah, I had a lot of trouble with this character because Billy Bob Thornton was Billy Bob Thornton as Jigo. And every time he spoke, it just took me right out of the movie because it just it did not fit in with everyone else's voice work, I thought. We all saw the dub version then, I take it. Yes, I saw yes. the dub version. Yeah. yeah, I've never seen it with the original voice actors. I always prefer that. I mean, I know people don't like to read subtitles, but I always recommend in 99% of the time to do that. But I thought, given the fact that these were major actors, this wasn't just, you know, who showed up that day. I mean, Miramax made a point of going to people that had had hits for them. Billy Bob Thornton had been in Sling Blade. They wanted to use him. I agree. You can tell who the characters are from their voice in most cases, if you're familiar with the actor. It didn't take me out, but I did know instantly it was Billy Bob. Yeah, it's like he didn't even try. Yeah, Billy Bob's the only one that I really noticed. Like, the other ones, I'm like, oh, who is... Oh, okay, that's Clear Danes. Who's that? Oh, like... I don't know who even know who Billy Crudded is or whatever his <laughs> he's name. He's a wannabe Tom Cruise. I feel like his whole career he's been chasing after Tom Cruise and not getting those roles. Really? The only thing I know him from is Almost Famous. Yeah. And he almost is famous, Yes, I guess. exactly. That's his career. It is. Pretty much sums it up. Yeah, but Billy Bob's the only one. But I, I, for this kind of character, you never know if you could trust him or not. It, it seems like a Billy Bob character. Yeah, I, I agree. And and fun. He, he introduces himself as a monk, and he's telling Ashitaka, oh, if you have gold, we need to get you out of this town because there's bandits. And indeed, there are like three people that are about to mug them. And they run out of town on this. I think this is going to be a benevolent, funny monk character. I'm thinking about Golden Child, for Christ's sake. You know, I'm oh, thinking- God, you invoked <laughs> Golden Child. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I am. I'm thinking about a delightful, silly, comedic character that's going to come in and out of this. No, this is going to be one of our major villains. If this story has a villain, it's got to be Jigo. I mean, he is someone that is actually working on behalf of the emperor to go kill God, a forced deity that they can then use as a magic talisman to stay immortal. And we also meet another character. I think that's uh, villain's a trickier word for Lady Ibashi, but I do feel like we're supposed to think of her, at least from her introduction, as being very menacing and someone not to mess with. She's this head of a town, Iron Town. They're bringing in rice and they're attacked by wolves and she's just having them pull out guns and, and taking them out. Is this the most confusing town? Because you've got the <laughs> recovering, rehabbed hookers also with some of them have husbands. They make guns and things. They're called Iron Town. What's going on? To me, this is so Miyazaki, like it, because it's so complex. You have a woman in the first place running this town. You know, they call it Iron Town. I'm thinking Barter Town from Mad Max and Tina Turner, a matriarchal society. But yeah, she's taking in women from brothels. They're they're put in positions of power. They're running the iron mills while the men go out and fight for rice. But she's also taking care of lepers. Like she's this evil person that's exploiting the land, but she's also helping hookers and lepers. Yeah, she's got a heart of gold. It's okay. 
No, well, I think it is okay. I mean, I think what you're learning is that here's a character that takes care of her own. She takes care of human beings, uh, people that are cast out and gives them a second chance. And they're building a society. I think what we're seeing with Irontown is the development of civilization, what will become skyscrapers and everything we associate with modern Japan it right now is in its infancy. And it's just being built with outcasts who don't fit in with the whole samurai code that they're going to fight against. Literally, there's a, a samurai tribe that wants to invade and we'll see them later. But here in the beginning, uh, yes, what makes her great for her own people makes her terrible for nature. She's stealing rice. She's shooting wolves. I love that the guns, too, are like, they're not rifles yet. You set them on your shoulder, almost like a bazooka. They're like fireworks. It's just basically yeah. like a tube with some gunpowder in it, and you just light it. And uh, yeah, it feels like shooting sparklers at these wolves. But she does have rifles. That's her secret she's going to share later. She'll have better aim. But right here, we get a pretty exciting scene in which they're attacked by wolves. Did you think the wolves were going to be the good guys or the bad guys? I actually thought they're going to be good guys because animals usually aren't bad in animation. Mm -hmm. So I, I wasn't expecting the wolves to be the bad guys. I figured that Lady Abashi was going to be the bad guy. And she kind of was in a way, but kind of everyone's kind of in this film. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of gray areas with a lot of this. I mean, you, you've got your recovered hookers in here making body jokes about being able to do what they want and not have to service a man. They all want to bang Ashitaka. They're like all turned on by. Him. Oh yeah. I mean, that's why I'm like, Whoa, this movie's really getting interesting now. And, and I think we should call out, you keep calling them wolf Stewart, but these animals are more or less gods. They, they have some kind of, a deity in them. There, there'll be bigger versions of each animal that are like the main god, but none of these are just wolves or apes or boars at this point. Yeah, I suppose that's true. It's a, uh, Shintoism. I don't know. I feel like it, it, it's part of that culture and the religion to that you worship animals. And so, yes, we have Moro, who we'll find out later is the surrogate mother for Princess Mononoke. We have, I think, Mononoke in this scene. She's dressed up in a mask and all, but she is playing wolf to fit in with them as they do this attack. I think because we had the boar character be explained as demonic because he was shot with iron, it made me believe that, okay, well, then guns are the bad guys in this. Anyone that gets infected with iron, anyone that's working with technology and metal, they must be the bad guys, and they're turning nature into demons. And so, to me, in the beginning at least, I thought this was going to be a simple setup of we have to stop Iron Town in order to have harmony. That's kind of what I was thinking, and I really think when San showed up, that's when the movie really took off, just going full force for the rest of the movie. We see San and the wolves attack Lady Eboshi and, and the other soldiers as they're trying to bring back rice. And to me, it gets even more confusing because Ashitaka, who's traveling with them, goes, I think he's going to side with San at this point. This is when he decides to take up the fight of ecology. No, he's going to go down in the forest, which is very dangerous to save a couple of survivors that fell down the cliff. Yeah, it's worth pointing out Lady Ibashi leaves men behind. She's like, oh, well, they're probably dead. Let's go on. They fell off the mountainside. I thought they were dead. Even when I'm seeing them in, in the river, I'm thinking, yeah, they're dead. But no, Ashitaka goes and finds them, rescues them. He's going to be the one to bring them home. Uh, it's Boy, yeah, 
Princess Mononoke. It is not your typical boy meets girl cute <laughs> moment. I mean, her face is covered in blood when she they first see each other. She's pretty badass. Yeah, what is she doing? She's gnawing out the bullet. <laughs> yeah, she's sucking the iron out of her mother. That The mother got shot, Moro, voiced by Gillian Anderson. And yeah, spitting out blood and iron, it's... Wow, what an introduction. Yeah, I'm scared of you. Even that mask that she wears, it's it's not your typical Disney princess crown. It's this very tribal mask that she'll put on when she goes into battle. It's dehumanizing. We never think of her as a person when she's wearing it. But here in the forest, I, I get a little Princess Bride here. You, you know, if you've seen the Princess Bride, the characters go through this forest that supposedly no one could ever get through. And that's how this forest is described. No humans have ever survived. And in there, we meet these like weird little ghost with rotating heads and they click and they're kind of cute but they're also kind of frightening i thought they were adorable too and they kind of make this clack 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 sound it's the only thing from this movie i've seen toys of but i've actually seen these on display in various novelty shops here in la that okay that explains a lot because i thought it looked familiar like a toy i had seen i'm like oh i just managed to be blending things together in my head <laughs> but yeah they they definitely have a marketability to them if, if your wee one needed to latch onto an ewok or a droid uh, this is <laughs> this is the best character. it's gonna get <laughs> yeah kodamas they're good luck charms they're basically tree spirits that i think they could make it go either way for this team that ashitaka is literally carrying a man on his back he's given his elk to another injured man whose arm he's put in a splint they're trying to make it to iron town i think the kodamas could just let them die but instead just sort of guide them this sort of lead the path to iron town even though they don't really want iron town to flourish i think they respect ashitaka's humanity in wanting to help one of his own i think that's what helps him well and ashitaka helps everybody i mean he seems to have a heart i guess is what i say in a moral compass whereas everyone else is just like i'm gonna kill this group and there's nothing you can do about it and he seems to want to help everybody yeah, everyone has taken a side in this film. Boche, even San, the princess of this film, she's hardcore on the animal side, but it's Ashitaka who's going to be trying to mend all the relationships between all these factions. He must be a middle child. I think it's his perspective that he's infected. He just sees disease and wants a cure. And he recognizes that the cure to all of this animosity is harmony, peace. I mean, I think he has a line later, at least in the English translation, where he's like, I just want peace. Yeah, that's where he's coming from. He doesn't really want one side to win. He, because he's human doesn't mean that he really is that impressed with Irontown. I, I don't get the sense that he is. And when he finally makes it back to Irontown, you know, th this is when he learns about all the different goings on, the prostitutes, the lepers. But San and the wolves are going to attack. I, I, is this something they've tried to do repeatedly? And this is the first time San's been able to get inside the gates? I'm guessing that to be the case. Yeah, so. I took this as like a longstanding like, rivalry that was coming to a head at this point, And Ashitaka just happened to walk through all of this and be like the catalyst. My sense is that guns are new and thus it's it's up the necessity to, you know, nip this in the bud, as it were. I mean, it would be one thing you're just stealing our rice, but now they have rifles and Lady Yabashi at night is like 
targeting those that are planting trees. I mean, she's really anti-environmental. Yeah, there's apes that plant trees. They're the Ents, I guess, of this world, (laughs) to make the Lord of the Rings analogy. But yeah, this is where we find out that Naga, that boar at the beginning, he was infected with hate because of that iron bullet. So I guess that was the first animal to be shot by one of these guns and turn evil because of it. Right. And so... Son and the wolves attack. I love the animation. Like the way Son is running, it's something about the way they make her legs move. It's very quickly, but it's also very rigid as she runs along the rooftops. It really makes her feel like a warrior. See, I felt she, the way they animated that, I thought she was very animalistic in her movements. And then when, you know, it moved and raised by the wolves and everything, it all made sense because she moved like an animal, I felt, or someone who has not been around upright humans for a long time. Yeah, the idea of stasis in motion is something I always think about in Japanese movies that, you know, on one hand, it always feels like there's something not moving in the frame, that it's just, you know, layered over. But then you have these areas or elements that are so fastidiously, you know, drawn and and precise. And yet you can really sense that they want to get the movements right here with her. I agree. It feels very much like she's running like with the wolves. I mean, literally, she's running with wolves. So why wouldn't she be more animalistic here? I do think that this is another great sequence for Miyazaki where the movie really comes alive is her break in and attempted assassination of Lady Yabashi. What's really scary, though, is Ashitaki, he's he's trying to play both sides and he sees that San's in danger and trying to save her. But Son gets shot in the face by Lady Eboshi. Like, she puts an iron bullet right into that mask, and that is a scary moment for me. Yeah, well, she shoots her in the mask. It's worth saying it doesn't actually pierce her skull or anything. No, it doesn't damage her face, but that mask shattered. Uh, Yes, very frightening. Actually... Ashitaka is the one that gets shot here. I, I'm not sure. I guess when you advocate peace, you get caught in the middle. And he literally does here. You, you can't play all the sides and expect not for one of the sides to get pissed. Yeah, he tries to play both sides. And he like, San and Eboshi are fighting each other. And he like knocks them out and takes San. And he's walking away. One of the brothel, former brothel workers, puts a bullet right through his gut. Pretty tough stuff here. And this is also a repeated image of that snake phantom stuff that he actually shows off his arm. And I think that's what we're supposed to understand is that anytime he gets shot with a bullet and live, it's going to leave an anger. I mean, I think that this is the visual representation of resentment and anger caused by the gun violence. And I don't know that this movie is anti-gun so much as it is anti-machine, anti-technology. Yeah, what we're seeing is that if you engage in those things, it's going to leave wounds that turn people demonic. It's going to come back to you in the form of wild boars and arms that are sprouting tentacles. Yeah, I kind of felt like there was this whole message about living in harmony with nature, not necessarily that the guns were evil, but that we all have to live on this earth and Ashitaka represented, you know, the harmony that we all have to have together. Yeah, we see as Ashitaka is infected, it's starting to infect the other animals. San's going to take him back to the forest. We see the apes and, like, they want the body. They want to eat him to, like, get his power. Like, it's causing discontent among the wildlife, who, again, are all gods at this point, and there's all these talking scenes. But those apes, I I thought Lord of the Rings, because they kind of look like the ringwraiths from Lord of the Rings with those their black skin and the 
red eyes in the night. Maybe like Gollum or something like that. They could have had an ambassador that was nicer. I do feel like they get underserved. All of the animals have like one head god that's voiced by an actor we've heard of who sort of, you know, helps us at least understand their point of view. But the apes, yeah, are... I guess we saw them plant trees, so that was their nice moment. But I do get the sense that, yeah, they're a little bit scarier here. But if there's a creature that really can bring them together, it's the great forest spirit. It's literally drawn as a human head on an animal body with plant antlers. I mean, what can heal everything is this god that everyone wants. Yeah, literally, as he walks, like, plants are growing from underneath his feet. I don't know if it's supposed to be a Jesus metaphor, but he's walking on water at one point. Yeah, and I felt this was all very... I I love the effect of it with the human head on the elk and everything. And it reminded me of Native American tales of forest animals and spirit animals. And, you know, you have all these different spirit animals responsible for different things. And that's what it reminded me of, which is now even more interesting because I'm finding out from you guys about how this is, you know, from this time period. So it's kind of interesting. Here's a concept I still haven't figured it out. All right, so we have the great forest god. I, th- I w- would just call him God. He's the creator of all things in this world, but he has a dualism. By day, he seems benevolent, right? But at night, he grows taller. He gets kind of translucent and gooey. And is he dangerous? If you encountered him, it's said at one point, Jigo sees him, the hunter, and others say it's a sin to look at him. My sense is, is that if you encounter him at the night, you will get Old Testament. If you encounter him in the day, <laughs> you get New Testament. Maybe that's why no humans ever made it through the forest. They try to go through at night and they encounter the night walker. It could just be a symbol for how scary night is at times. I mean, if you've ever been in the forest in the middle of the night, oh, yeah. it's freaking scary. And it could just be a remnant of some sort of fable or tale that this is why the night was scary to people. Let me ask you this, though. Is he a monster at this point? Is he different? Is he a different being? Because he basically is going to save Ashitaka's life. That basically, as the elk version of himself, he's going to, I don't know, dribble on him or give him a kiss or something, uh, suck out the bullet wound. He doesn't take the curse away, but he does heal the bullet shot that he was dying from. Would he not have done that as the great night stalker? I think his purpose as the night walker is more to protect the forest. And that during the day when he's the elk with the human face, it's more about growing the forest and, and fixing it and reseeding. And yeah, that's why he has to be in that elk form to help cure Ashitaka. I don't know. We never see him attack humans. When the humans do show up at night, Jigo and a couple of others, they're dressed up as bears. So we, we don't know what he does. It never tells us what the Nightwalker would do. And maybe we're just supposed to figure it out, make up our own thing about it, too. Sure. I mean, I, I guess I that's all I can do. But I, it was a concept I would have liked more fully fleshed out. I would have liked to have known what he was capable of in one form that he wasn't in another. Because they make such a big deal about the fact that he's different at night and day. And in fact... I think he's vulnerable during that transition. When they finally cut off his head, it'll be because he's in between those states. 
But yes, Jigo is here. He is with his hunters. I do love these guys. Again, I'm laughing, even though they're villainous, even though they're just out there bloodthirsty, trying to, you know, bag a god here. The fact that they're dressed up as bears and later they'll be dressed up in boar outfits. I, I do think there's just something kind of comical about them always. I, I think it's funny when they're dressed up as bears. It reminds me of Mario in his, like, raccoon suit. But... <laughs> But when they dress up as those boars, it is scary. But this is where we meet the boars, too, the boar tribe. Akoto, Keith David. I like the boars. And have you ever seen a wild boar in the wild? They're not that big. No? <laughs> Are they? But they're freaking scary. No, I I know. When I lived in New Zealand and I, I was in, like, the rural areas, you had to be careful of wild boars because they would attack. We have them down in Arkansas here and in southern Missouri, and they're scary looking. They're just, and they're mean, and yeah, they're stuff of nightmares. See, I'm only familiar with them from horror movies. There was a movie called Razorback where there was a giant one that tried. I think it was Australian. I thought you were going to say you only knew them from Lion King, where they're friendly. Oh God, that's right. There is that. <laughs> believe me, that is not my go-to for anything. But you're right. There, <laughs> there is some Pumbaa or whatever the Timon, and I, I do not know Disney characters. But yes, I don't right. That is not what I think about. I think about the '80s horror movie in which the giant Australian Razorback uh, is trying to eat people. Now, see, for me, this is where this movie, like, I was totally enthralled at this point when Morrow and Okoto showed up, and I loved it at this point, and I loved what happens all the way to the end. Yeah, Okoto is supposed to be dead. He's old. He's he's their old leader, but he's he's decided to pull it together because he wants a war, right? He's the war. He's blind though, mm-hmm. and he's an albino. Yeah, I don't quite... They didn't mention that, but he was all white. But then you saw them painting each other's faces for battle, which yeah, I, I found really that. amusing. Yeah. yeah, it was cute. I'm like, okay. But you do get this continual dialogue going on. Moro, who is the... I called her the Mother Wolf. I think that's a band, like a, a 70s rock tribute wolf band. Wolf Mother, but Mother yeah. Wolf. Wolf Mother, that's what it was. Okay. But the Mother Wolf, Moro, she has a whole debate with Akoto, the leader of the Boars. Like, do we go to war? Like, this is... Again, a very complicated film, like one you have to pay attention to because there are so many factions. I feel like I'm watching elves and dwarves and wizards and orcs. Like, I, I really do feel like this is could be on the scale of Lord of the Rings if it was a book. And more to the point, I feel like this is too condensed. I feel like at this point, even though I like that they're, they're complex, it's kind of like when I saw Akira. I had read all of the manga first. And yeah, so six volumes, <laughs> not six. Well, I don't know about how many collected volumes. I mean, there were like 28 issues that had. So to see that turned into two hours, you just feel lapses. You feel like, oh, I wanted to spend more time on this. And I was just barely getting to know you. Like I said, the apes, we don't even know them. I feel like this would be better as a trilogy or a TV series or at least a four hour event as opposed to two hours. I feel like. By choosing to be this complex, you're choosing to spend more time on it. So the fact that they only have two hours to explain all of this uh, is a little frustrating for me. It's almost like it needed to be two movies at Definitely. some point. Because I, I had the same problem where I 
like the first part of the movie, I was like, okay, there's some great spots in here. You know, I wish there was a little bit more of those great spots, but then it hits this stride when San shows up and it's just like, boom, boom, boom. And things are happening. And I wish there was more of that. And I would love to see more about these forest animals and their relationships and why this is all happening with Lady Abashi and everything. Maybe some history to that. And I definitely feel like it could have been two movies and still been pretty good and not really drug out too far. Yeah, if Bakshi was going to reduce Lord of the Rings to two films, they could have easily made this two films. Yeah, I feel like Ashitaka has kind of reached his peak here. I mean, he came to be healed. He met the god, and the god chose not to heal him. Nobody wants him around now, so to have him be the central character is like, well, uh, you're not really... I guess he's going to try and bind them. He's going to try and keep the peace. But as everyone else is talking about war, he is going to uh, sort of... I, I never quite get the sense that he has a journey anymore after this point, but he is going to try and yeah keep things from exploding here in the forest. I think he has a crush on her just from sight. Are we expected to think, you know, he had that moment where he woke up and she was standing over him with a knife and he's like, you're beautiful. <laughs> and and oh, I, yeah. think, I think, he, you know, he's just in love with her. We're expected to think that, you know, he's hanging out basically because he wants to date a wolf chick. Hey, she's probably real freaky in bed. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> but to make matters even more complicated, we get the Boars ready to go to war. Lady Oboshi is going to be taking her men to go battle the Boars, which at the same time, this is when we find out that Jigo is leading the Emperor, Lord Asano's men, to secretly raid Iron Town when Iboshi goes to fight and try to go get the head as well of the nature god like there there's so many fronts going on again lord of the rings with all these different fronts that are happening and all these different backstabbings going on like the emperor wants iron town for its natural resources so now there's going to be a double cross there i was really confused at this point yeah we never get to see the emperor i think it's confusing partly because again it's a character we never even see we hear about lord asano who i don't think is the emperor but i think is working on his behest to invade iron Town. I guess the point is all you have to really understand is every time you establish a culture, there's another one coming to take it away. That's my sense, is that Miyazaki sees the world as constant upheavals and rivals and battles. And as Iron Town exploited nature, Lord Asano or the Emperor, they want to exploit Iron Town. Yeah, it, it makes it interesting. Again, can't this be another movie? I mean, my God, to suddenly throw this in here with only half an hour remaining feels like a disservice to the complexity. And I just wanted to see more of the animals because I really <laughs> thought they were interesting. And I loved Moro as the wolf mother. Yeah, Gillian Anderson did a good job. I, mm -hmm. I feel out of all the voice acting, maybe because it's a more interesting part, but she's, you know, she'll have scenes where she's sitting next to a Ashitaka being like, I want to yes. bite your head off, you know? <laughs> yeah, if you're not gone at sunrise, I'm going to eat you. Yeah, yeah I thought it was really good. And I kind of liked Okoto too, but I mean, at this point, so many things were going on. I'm like, I don't even know who I'm supposed to root for at this time. Yeah, I think Ashitaka... But I'm less into him in the second half of the movie. Yeah, he's running off, I guess, to go warn Iboshi about Jigo's plan. That 
Tetsuo arm comes back into play. More heads are popped off. But I was sad his elk gets shot here. I know, it gets injured. I was terrified. You know, I don't like things in movies where animals die, even if it's animated. And I was like, no, don't die. <laughs> you don't need to watch this one. Or Watership Down. That was I was always thinking Ooh. about Watership Down. That was my first experience of watching an animated movie in which creatures like rabbits are covered in blood. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what I find the most horrifying moment, I think, in this film, we don't see the initial battle between men and boar. We see the aftermath as Ashitaka is like walking amongst the corpses of these boars that are just like upside down and thrown all about. We're going to find out what happened in this battle. But it, this is terrifying stuff to see this boar graveyard like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very just like, oh, yeah. And definitely even drove home the point even more that this is not for children. Yeah. But then we are starting to see collaboration, and I guess it is Ashitaka that first tries to lift one of these corpses off of a wolf that's trapped underneath, and that then we have suddenly men from Irontown willing to help out as well. And well, then, and they resisted at first. Remember the guy tried to kill him? Well, one guy, yes. One guy that, tried to kill him, and then they killed him, and then helped Ashitaka get the wolf out. Yeah, there's still Lord Asano's men were there controlling the men of Irontown. Again, very confusing. They had poison darts, but the men of Irontown turn against Asano's men. We find out that the, Asano's men like had planted landmines and just tossed grenades down onto the boars and on to the men from Irontown that were fighting. Like, they were casualties just like the boys. They, they, they were war fodder just like the boars. Mm-hmm. I do get the sense that the real evil, the only thing that Miyazaki is comfortable really classifying purely on evil terms is this emperor, which is maybe why he doesn't show him. He doesn't have any kind of human quality at all. He just, other people do his work and by sending these samurai, yeah, everyone is being harmed. It's it's only causing the problem further. I thought they were telling us bullets from guns are what cause nature to revolt. But in truth, it's much more complicated than that. And that becomes evident in the second half, that it is much more about Japan lo- maybe losing its soul when it became under an emperor's control. I mean, even the apes are going to warn. It's not animal or human that's going to ruin the forest it's going to be something else entirely in between the two like i I feel like the message is in this very ambiguous film if you could say there's a message it's something about hate and and reacting to what's going on instead of looking for creative solutions and, and trying to find harmony it's hate that tries to totally destroy one side whatever side that's on you could be on the side of nature but if you're going to try to destroy the side of technology that's just as bad as what technology is doing to the forest. Rage consumes, and I think we see that so brilliantly in the visual of those snakes. They come back again, that we have Okoto, the blind boar, and for reasons I'm not entirely sure, Princess Mononoke, who has up to this point been kind of a wolf girl, is like, I want to help him. So she's riding this blind boar into battle. Doesn't seem like a a winning side, frankly. But uh, at some point, what sets him off? Yeah, we have these, the men, Asano's men, they've dressed in boar skins, which is just creepy. And because Okoto is blind, he can only smell the skin. So he thinks his warriors have come back as ghosts and he's kind of bolstered up. But then these 
boar skins like creep up on him and start stabbing him or shooting him with poison darts and that's when he is filled with the demon rage yeah but yeah and we get that visual again not only is he like sprouting these tentacly things but they're going through the flesh of Mononoke that that San is like because she's riding him and touching him they're like busting through her hand and she's getting infected I think the message is such an inflammation will consume everything. That anger is a disease that is communicable. Yeah, and she's always been on the side of nature. She's never liked the humans, even though she is. When we find out her backstory is very simple, like her, she was a baby with her parents, and her parents were doing something to destroy the forest, and Mora showed up, and the parents got so scared they dropped the baby and ran away, and so Mora just raised San as her own. Shouldn't we have had a little bit more? I feel yeah. like... I wanted those parents to be characters here later. Like, I wanted that loop closed. Maybe the dad was one of the samurais or something. Something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Or or just that we encounter them at some point. I wanted to know how parents could abandon a child in the forest and know who they were. But yes, it's Look, kind of... when a, a giant two-tailed wolf shows up, you drop everything and run. <laughs> Uh, you call the forest ranger. I mean, you know, you go back. I mean, <laughs> the, the idea that they completely abandoned her and that the wolf Moro actually took sympathy, even though hates humans, could see this as just a child. And so raised her to hate her own kind, really. I mean, she is a human that hates human beings. And, and see, I ended up with a lot of questions like, how did she learn how to speak if she was abandoned as a small child? That kind of thing. Well, because wolves speak in this movie. Yeah, they, they do not move their lips, though, like you would think in a normal Disney movie. It's it's If you've seen Twilight, it, it's laughable in Twilight when the wolf, werewolves speak, and it's just voices coming out of their mouths. These ones, these animals, their mouths kind of move, but they're not synced up with what's being said. You know, one thing that I'm really aware of when I'm watching animated movies is at some point we have songs, right? That they're basically <laughs> musicals in animated drag. That mm -hmm. That's how we reborn the musical genre here in America is by making it animated. And songs oftentimes, when they're good, help tell us how characters are feeling. We only get one song in this, and I think it's supposed to be the love theme that expresses Ashitaka and... Sans unrequited but still palpable affection for one another. I guess if I like this song, I might want to see them together as a couple. But I don't really feel like I do. I'll say this. Yeah, every Miyazaki film or every Ghibli film feels like it has this one theme song. I actually have an album called Princess Ghibli, which is a bunch of death metal bands covering <laughs> songs nice. from Studio G It's actually is very it really good. Oh, it's very good. Yeah, okay. it, it's actually really good. Uh, surprisingly, shockingly good. I think they did a second one. I haven't checked that one out. But whenever I hear these songs now in the films, I think of the death metal version. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like... San is the appropriate one to be infected by Okoto's rage here because she hates the humans, but she seems to be fighting it too. Maybe it's because she does now have a thing for Ashitaka. They have the one moment where she's girly girl. And I do actually love it because it is so out of her character. It's like, she's hate, I hate humans and blah, 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 blah. And then one of the boars brings her the dagger that mm -hmm. Ashitaka like sends some gift to her. And she's like, oh, pretty. <laughs> See, yeah, that was the one thing that just didn't fit with her character, but it was necessary. Yeah, I, I feel like that's part of Miyazaki's 
charm with characters is that he'll find weird moments. They reveal themselves to be more than who you think they are. That as hardened and as scary as she is, she can still get all, you know, <laughs> swoony over being given a cute little knife necklace. Keep in mind, it is a knife that he's giving her. It's yes. not like it's a it's a pearl or a gem. I mean, it's still a weapon, but it it was nice to see that she could be a little bit gooey inside. For much of this movie, she has none of that. But here we get Eboshi and Jigo have been going after the head of this forest god. Here's where they get their first chance. Akoto is brought to this island where Akitasha was also healed and received the forest god in the elk form with human face start to approach walking on the water. And I got to say, that is chilling when you see that bullet. Lady Eboshi shoots a bullet right through the neck of that forest god. And it's just... The way it's just front two legs start to sink into the water and how like its expression doesn't change at all as it's shot and then rises back up. It, it's it, it's a great moment. It tells you this is a powerful deity. The human face is frightening and jarring. That thing has scared me from the get-go. Just the human <laughs> it's face. It's the human face. They're like opossums. And it doesn't speak. I mean, you think when you meet God, he's going to have something to say to you. You'll have questions. You'll have a dialogue. Nothing. This guy is Buddha. I mean, he just this the, a blank face, not saying nothing to you about anything, and so you don't really know where he's coming from. Is he coming to kill you? I mean, he walked up to Moro and to Okoto, and they just dropped dead. I mean, like main character suddenly just killed just in his presence. So there is real power to his presence. And the fact that Iboshi is able to take him out here, yeah, you really do wonder what's going to happen. And I do remember this, too. That was the other thing I remembered from my theatrical viewing. Is like, there's a really freaky scene with Billy Bob Thornton running away with a severed head in a box while this monster is coming after him. Yes. Oh, my God. And that little... And how they animated him with his big Jim Blossom nose and the big wart on his head. And then he talks like Billy Bob Thornton and he's running around with a severed head of this thing is just downright disturbing. It really is. Yeah, the way they get the head is it's nightfall. So it starts turning into the Nightwalker. And as that neck stretches, I guess it's more vulnerable as it transforms. And they're able to shoot it again and get that head. It's worth pointing out that Moro, although she goes out pretty easily, she does get one bite in there. I think she takes out Aboshi's arm or something. Like, Yeah, she her head is like loose. It's just her head. <laughs> and it comes like swirling in and like bites her arm off. That did remind me of a, a pivotal character in Nausicaa in the Valley of the Wind, who's also missing an arm. It, it really reminded me of that point. But yeah, it's just that head is like just moving <laughs> around and she's like, I told you I get <laughs> it you. It was so random. We were not thinking about the wolves at this point with a headless monster growing in front of us. But all of a sudden the severed wolf head jumps up and bites off a lady's arm. I'm like, whoa, this movie. Someone says, what a revolting spectacle. And I agree. This thing is really crazy amazing in its climax. Yeah, that just didn't expect that to happen whatsoever because they did a very good job where you forgot about it completely. Yeah. And what's so sad is when the Akutama, those little white ghosts, they just start falling from the trees. They're dead yeah. because the forest god has been killed. Yeah, it would be the equivalent of watching Jiminy Cricket get like swatted and, and smashed at the climax <laughs> of Pinocchio. I mean, the cute Kodama are falling dead from the trees. And I mean, I get the forest is going to die, but did they really have to kill the mascot? I mean, this is brutal. <laughs> 
Yeah, they were super cute, and that was really sad. And I think of anything I would want, now that I know that vaguely similar toy that I've been seeing is actually this, I'm like, oh, no, I think I need one. Mm-hmm. And they're super cute, and I'm sorry they died. Yeah, I, I agree. They they are a great, cute way of thinking about this movie, but this movie is not <laughs> cute for the rest of it. We have no. a giant monster, headless, I should point out, chasing people, destroying everything in its path. Plus, I think, is it its blood? There's just ooze all I, That's how I take it. Yeah, it, like that's how I was waiting to see if you're going to try to describe this in the plot <laughs> summary because I don't know. Like, I guess is it's blood? Is it expanding? It becomes the blob. It just starts covering the land and killing anything it touches. Mm-hmm. One of the underserved characters, I think, is Toki. It's voiced by Jada Pinkett Smith. She's one of the prostitutes in Irontown. She has a whole subplot where she's been trying to keep the samurai from invading and she has this kind of good-for-nothing husband that was wounded and she also has a crush on Ashitaka. Did you get the sense she should have been a bigger part of this climax here? We see her briefly. Ashitaka comes back to tell her and the other whores to to get in the water and (laughs) to escape the flow of ooze, but I kind of wanted her to do more. Honestly, the the whores all blended together for me. Oh, no, the main one stuck out to me. Yeah, Toki had moments. She was in it enough to make you wish she was in it more here at the end. Ashitaka, he saves Eboshi, Lady Eboshi, again, with that moral ambiguity. This is the lady who's killed a god, and he's still willing to save her and then go to Irontown and save everyone there. Tell him to, yeah, get into that water. I guess that's the one place the blood can't destroy him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for some reason, I just, maybe I just, something about, I didn't like the Iron Town necessarily, but I wasn't enthralled with any of the other than their backstory, but I had trouble, like, they weren't, I guess she wasn't wearing enough of an outfit for me to realize, okay, it's that one, and she kept talking. I thought it was different ones. Yeah, well, there were different ones, but they, because Ashitaka rescued her husband, she just had lots of moments with him mm-hmm. and the husband. She had she was featured more. All the girls wanted Ashitaka. I mean, they even had yeah. a very yeah. suggestive scene where they're jumping up and down on the bellows, and it's, I mean, it's <laughs> simulated inter- intercourse. Yes. I mean, it's up and down, up and down. I'm like, I mm-hmm. can't believe how adult this movie is. But yeah, yeah, they're like you're gonna have to be really strong to keep going for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're not. It's not even like double entendre. I mean it's, it's barely overt. innuendo here. The, yeah, the, the, <laughs> Miyazaki has no problems, and Japanese culture has no problems using animation to speak to adults. And I think for someone here in America, that's always a little weird because we always think of it primarily being for the, the audience of a child. It's a different culture. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and one I really appreciate. Again, I always do try and find the good ones. You know, I, I don't see everything. But when one gets hype, I do usually go find that anime and, and try to watch it. But the climax sort of fixes itself. I do feel like this ending is not very satisfying in the way that it all resolves because basically they just grab a head and give it back to the headless body. Yeah, Jigo's locked the head up in an iron box. I guess this came out after Seven. I'm not sure. What's in the box? That's all I kept thinking of as they were trying to get that box with the head in it. It was being written around the time that that movie 
was made. So maybe, maybe that was influenced. <laughs> I mean, I do know that this movie started production in July of 1995, which is around the time Seven came out, and uh, was yeah, completed okay. <laughs> two years later, which I got to say is very, very fast to be have a movie this long be completed in two years. Yeah, this is all hand-drawn, right? There's no CGI elements in this. Really? Hand-drawn, not computer animation. More impressively... Half of the cells that you're seeing had some direct influence by Miyazaki. He drew something in that cell. So you're literally seeing one man draw half of the movie for you by hand. Wow. Which I've tried doing hand-drawn animation. It is not fun. There's a reason we outsource it all to South Korea, and you have whole animation factories doing it now. You use computers now. It It is not a fun art. And Miyazaki would come around if you see Spirited Away, if you see some of the later ones. Yes. He did eventually bring in computers, but only sort of to assist. They're still largely hand-drawn affairs. But the whole point, I, I guess, with Ashitaka trying to get the head is they got to get it before sunrise, because then the Nightwalker will transform back into the elk and won't have ahead and die yeah again i'm always confused by that transition thing but i guess the point is that yes if he comes back into being an elk without his head then the god will be dead and jigo will be the new god or at least he seems to think so so well, yeah. he wants to give it to the emperor or maybe he'll keep it for himself maybe he's gonna backstab the emperor <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's what i think yeah he says he's he's got this letter from the emperor but my sense is that he's doing it all for him he has a really funny line towards the end where Everybody wants everything, but I might actually get it. I, I thought that was a good line. It's like, yeah. oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it is kind of true. We all want the world, but this is tempting for him. If he can just buy the next few minutes of dawn, he could control everything. And what's weird is they drop this line, and I don't know if this is in the Japanese version. They did this just to try to, I don't know why they drop it, but they're like, human hands must return the head. I, I don't know. There's no wolves. There's no boars. There's no apes at this point trying to get the head. And wasn't everyone human at the same, right there? I mean, am I missing yes. something? Because I, I kind of thought that too. I'm like, wait a second. I, I don't understand because everyone at that moment in that scene is human. Well, I'm thinking a lot of the animals are dead. I mean, with the forest yeah. dying, my sense is maybe this is wrong. I mean, I think it is supposed to be thought of as a three-prong affair that, that animals, humans, and nature are three distinct things. But my sense is if you kill the forest, you're killing the animals first, that humans can live in their iron town a little bit longer. So I don't think there's any animals to help. Yeah, well, that's why it's such a weird line, but Ashitaka and San both offer up the head, and they're covered in those demon marks. Like, there is a question. Are they going to turn into demons? Is this going to cost them their life as they return this yeah. head to the nature god? Mononoke got infected when she was riding that boar, right? I mean, mm -hmm. she's as covered in those scabs as Ashitaka is. And yeah, it's spread throughout his body now. It's not just the arm. It's everywhere. They're, they're really a perfect couple. <laughs> they look exactly alike. <laughs> But does the god die anyway? He gets his head and falls, and everything turns green. Is the nature god dead? That is the ambiguity of the end, and, and they have that uh, uh, debate. I mean, Ashitaka is like, he is not dead. He is everywhere. And I think San's like, no, he's dead. <laughs> I <laughs> hate humans. They killed him. Yeah, I mean, we've seen Irontown. It's turned 
back into what I am guessing what it looked like before it was turned into Iron Town. It's all green again. There's forestation everywhere. What's so weird is it's like, Son's like, I'm going back to the forest. And Ashitaki's like, I'm going to help rebuild Iron Town. Hopefully he's more ecologically minded <laughs> this time as he builds up this industrial society. But it, it is a weird, like for, for Westerner, this is not the kind of ending you would expect. Yeah, and I think that it's it's more accurate. I mean, I do think that Miyazaki is half considering this as historical Japan, that, yes, people did rebuild and, you know, technology can destroy, but at the same time, it's not going to stop people from using technology. He is not such a Luddite that he would be like, oh, no more iron for anyone. We'll never do that again. No, the, the point is to go forward thinking about others and how it influences, uh, to be aware to not only think of yourself is I think the attitude to take here and that is very Japanese and it is very different than what we usually get at the end of any kind of ecological message here in the West. Usually we're told it's all your fault. Stop using these things. Go live in the trees. That's not how this concludes. Not in my mind. This is saying no. that, that there's a place for iron and mechanization and civilization as long as it considers the creatures in the forest. I'm not a Buddhist. I ha I read a little bit on Buddhism, but I think there is this sense of harmony and trying to find balance, balance. among all yes. these different things. And we'll even see one of those little forest ghosts does return right at the end. There, there's just the one. one hint that maybe the god lived or maybe, yeah, maybe it will slowly return as humans find balance between industrialization and the environment. Were there any big environmental things going on when this movie was made at all? No, it's a theme throughout his works. If you All went, his stuff has If this, you went yeah. 10 years before, you would have seen a movie very, very similar to this, Nausicaa. I, again, what's so curious about Miyazaki is that normally I think of in Japanese works that, that nature is harmonious. And here what he's done is, I mean, boars and apes and wolves and all, they're fighting. They're bloody. I mean, that he sees this very much as a war, I think, makes it distinct. Okay. It's just interesting, you know, coming from someone who's doesn't know his work and kind of things like that. And it's all very, it, this is, like I said before, it's a very Native American harmonious kind of theme. Even Ponyo, I, I guess we're recommending the Japanese dub for that one. I mean, that's even a very strong environmental thing with environmentalism going too far and the ocean flooding the world. I mean, it's something that's in almost every one of it. There's some interaction yes. with nature. And balance is the way to think about it, is that he's not going to weigh in on one side being the victor over the other. You have to have them in equal measure or there is going to be war. And I loved at the end the realization of the Irontown guy in the boat marveling at the flowers going in the forest. Yeah, so much of the shots, we haven't really focused. I mentioned a few moments, but there are just, there's so much beauty in this movie. Just the way yeah. that they'll take time to just watch a dew drop or something fall. It, 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 there are moments that are, that feel very poetic. And even though sometimes the animation can feel stiff and maybe the story can leave you astray, I always feel like these moments pop up that will impress everyone. I was really impressed with the animation and now even more so that you guys told me it was hand drawn and he actually took part in it. Because personally, it's, yes. Personally, yes, personally. Because it's, looking at it, some of it, I'm like, holy crap, that's really good animation. And, you know, knowing when the movie came out, I'm like, okay. And it had such movement. And I wonder if there's just 
like an element to the hand-drawn that you can't get. Definitely, I think there is. There's something special about hand-drawn animation. And I think if you go back, Marjorie, and watch his earlier films where they're all hand-drawn, you're not going to get Speed Racer. It's going to feel different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually, to be honest, you guys, because I did enjoy this movie, and there's a lot of different elements to it. And even though it does have some flaws, I was... When you search for it, one of the things that comes up is one of his early works is the Nausicaa. Yeah, my favorite one of his, yeah. Yeah, and I've kind of, like, read the description, and I'm like, oh, maybe I need to, like, watch that one rainy day or something and kind of just check it out. I actually got it from Netflix after watching this because I wanted to watch it again. Ah, okay. (laughs) Well, let's wrap up with this one, and then we can talk about, yeah, where to go next with Miyazaki. Okay. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Princess Mononoke? Jacob? Yeah, I think it's obvious. I, I've spoken pretty highly of this film. I don't think it's a perfect film there. What I would say is it's so condensed and so complicated. There's so many fronts going on here. When I say Lord of the Rings, I really do feel that way. Like Peter Jackson took three films and that could even get confusing watching that. Having all these different fronts with animals, with the Emperor, with Iron Town, all this stuff going on, you have to be paying attention. And I, I remember like, that's probably why the first time I just turned it off. I just, I didn't know it was going to require so much of me to, to really get what was going on in this film. But it's also another reason I probably watch it with the English dub is because I just, normally I always go for whatever the original language is. I want to hear it in the original language, but there is so much going on in this film. I want to really be able to keep up with it, but beautiful animation. I, and I love the story. I, I, I do love this Eastern harmonious message that Miyazaki is trying to tell where, no, it's not all about radical environmentalism. No, it's not that we could just rape the earth for its resources. We got to find some kind of balance and he's not going to give us that answer. That is up to us. He doesn't know the answer. That's what I'm guessing, but that's something we as a human race need to figure out. And so this is not for your little children. Your teenagers might like the action bits. I don't know if they'll fully get what's going on, but as an adult cartoon, not in a pornographic way, but as a, as a cartoon meant for an adult audience, it really works. And yeah, it's a strong recommend. Stuart. There's only one Miyazaki movie that I really love, that I just, I love, I adore, start to finish, and it's Spirited Away. I think that is the perfect Miyazaki movie, for me anyway. On all his other films, there are aspects that I love, and there are things that I struggle with. And my struggle in this one is that the scope becomes too big for the running time that we have. That I feel like just as I'm getting invested in this world, it kind of wraps up very tidily and... Not entirely satisfyingly. I mean, I I feel like by saying that we need balance, he's also avoiding the how we can achieve that. And admittedly, we don't know. It's, It's fair to say. But in drama, you owe answers. And I do feel like my challenge with this is that the relationship we're told is going to bring that balance is the least interesting thing about it. I mean, Princess Mononoke and Ashitaka, whether they get together or not, their love is not warming my heart. It's, as Marjorie has pointed out, the the thrill here is the, the animals. Like, much more than the human characters, it's seeing the animal characters, the, the, the fighting, the, the mysticism of all of it. That scope is great. And I do feel like there are sequences here that everyone's going to love. That said, this movie did bomb in American theaters, and I do think there's going to be a large portion of Americans that are just going to go, 
I didn't get it. And, you know, there are parts of this that I didn't totally get, but I always think that the the parts are worth seeking out here. Even if you may not love this movie in total, and I don't think I did, I liked that... Uh, I saw it. I liked it for its greatest moments. And I do think, yeah, if you like sophisticated animation, uh, there's really nothing else like it. Even in Miyazaki's work, I think this movie is distinct and it's a solid recommend. And I had a completely different experience. This is my first full length anime feature. And I think this has opened my eyes to a brand new genre. So I really enjoyed the experience of this, the intricacy of the story, even though it get a little convoluted at times, I, I feel like I now have to go back and maybe watch it one or two more times just to like get the full experience. And now that I know a lot more from you two guys about the history of the director and of these movies in general, I, I feel like I can really expand on what I've experienced so far and what I enjoyed about it and maybe even check out some of his earlier works to expand on that as well. I really loved the animal faction of this and I loved how it was animals that could talk and had thoughts, but it wasn't all cutesy and stuff like Disney-like, even though this was a Disney movie. I liked Ashitaki. I feel that he was very confusing though, but he was Kind of good, and he, he was the constant in the story and kept it moving, and everyone else was just coming in and out of his world. I do think it needed to be two movies, because it was a lot, a lot of stuff going on, and there's so much involved. But I recommend this movie, especially if you've never seen an anime movie. I think this might be a good place to start, and I'm likely to check out some more now because of this movie. It's great to hear that. I was I was actually worried for you, Marjorie. I was like, I, I was like, I don't know how she's going to take this. This this is a weird one to come in to me. I don't know that I would start here just because I, it is so extreme in the things that it does. I mean, for me, Akira is always a great place to start. Spirit Away again, another Miyazaki movie. I feel like that one a little more kid friendly, not totally, but a little more family audience friendly. It's kind of like a, a brilliant rethink of Alice in Wonderland. I, that one, again, I I actually think it might be the best anime movie I've ever seen. So I would start there. But I've liked many of his works. I think Kiki's Delivery Service is, is a fun one uh, for young kids particularly. I liked Porco Rosso. Uh, the, the red Porco pig. Rosso's a weird one, but I'd recommend it. Yeah, it's about a French pig, I believe, fighting in World War II. Yeah, I was hoping it'd be about a pig calling Porco Rosa. <laughs> it's, it's a fun one. It's kind of like the Red Baron, only in pig form. It's hard to describe, yes. as it, most of these films are. But everyone else is human. Yes. <laughs> uh, the later ones after Spirit Away, I haven't been as drawn to. I can say that. Yeah, I'll say, again, Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind. That's, again, probably my favorite. Marjorie, you like animals. I'd actually recommend Pompoco, which is you've played Super Mario Brothers three, right? Oh hell yeah. You you know what it what is it? The Takashi suit where Mario like could turn into a statue? Uh-huh. That's an actual like thing in oh. Japanese lore. So it's about these raccoons who can change into humans and it's it's probably the most strong minded like environmentalism film that Studio Ghibli has put out. Like, these raccoons become terrorists at one point trying to save their land. Wow. But I haven't seen that one. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. 
Yeah, some of the stuff that has come after, like The Secret Life of Arietti, it probably skews a little younger. Ponyo, definitely for little kids. My Neighbor Totoro, which people praise that film, but it really is for five-year-olds. That was an early one, too. Yes, that is an earlier one, but it's beautiful animation, though. If you want to see just some beautiful animation, check out My Neighbor Totoro. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely going to check out some of these, and I hope, I know. well, I noticed that Netflix has a huge anime section on it. None of these are on there, I believe. Oh, of course. <laughs> not not for instant, anyway. Yeah, yeah, I may have to get the disc thing again. I'd say you can't go wrong as long as you don't pick Ponyo. Don't start with Ponyo. Do not don't start, start with Ponyo. With Ponyo. Okay. Or, or Tales of Earthsea. That is the one that I've seen that I would oh, did not like at all. And I believe that was his son directing that one. Yeah, that, apparently that is part of the uh, behind-the-scenes scandal is that the son is ready for Miyazaki to retire. Miyazaki says he's going to retire after every film. After Princess Mononoke, I'm going to retire. After Spirited Away, I'm going to retire. The man keeps working. Even now in his 70s, he just finished a movie a couple years ago. He claims he's retired now. We'll see if that holds. But the son is ready to, like, take over. And I, I think <laughs> there might be a little battle in between father and son over who has control of Studio Ghibli. Well, thank you, Jacob and Stuart, for opening my eyes to a new experience and discussing this with me. And especially thank you to Paul Freeland. He's the one that made you watch it. He is. And I thank him for it because he introduced me to a new style of movies that I've previously just been like, yeah, that's not for me. And we thank him for helping us fund Now Underrated, our book that will be coming out. I know we we're all busy writing on it. It's to the editor. It's in different stages of production at this point. But we're excited for everyone that helped us and funded it to get a copy. Here, here. It has been quite a journey, and it is because of people like Paul that have donated and helped us continue to find movies that are underrated. So uh, we're glad to have done this one for you. If you need a little more fantasy with Claire Danes in your life, we're going to do that for you, too. We're going to get back to DC comic book movies. We're going to build up to that new Superman-Batman face-off that's coming out in a little over a month. And we're going to start by going to Stardust, which apparently is a Neil Gaiman comic book that became a Claire Danes movie. Kind of. It came out in comic book form, but it's written in prose. That is very interesting. But it is Matthew Vaughn. I think it's the one Matthew Vaughn film where you haven't gotten to, or at least the one comic book Matthew Vaughn film we haven't done. That's true. He did X-Men and Kingsman, and now we'll see how he does in the fantasy realm. I hear it's a little like Princess Bride. I don't know what to expect, but I'll be reading the book and watching the movie and prepare to talk about it next week. Well, thank you guys for discussing Princess Mononoke with me, and we better get back to writing about that book. The great forest spirit is dead now. Never. He's life itself. He's not dead, son. He's here right now, trying to tell us something. That it's time for both of us to live. Thank you to everyone who supported the Now Playing Kickstarter campaign. There are a lot of people out there with their eyes on the sign. If you haven't yet ordered your copy of Underrated Movies We Recommend, the first Now Playing book, you can pre-order it now. All pre-orders get the hardcover book signed by all four authors. You can order by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. It's the moment of truth, boys, so keep your eyes peeled. 
In the archives at nowplayingpodcast.com, you can hear reviews of hundreds of movies such as Rambo, The Transporter, The Avengers films, Batman, Superman, The James Bond movies, The Mission Impossible series, and more. This is unbelievable. And come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. See you there, my friend. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Do we just sit here and watch him die? Is there no way we can stop it? While at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Yakul and I will come and visit you whenever we can, all right? You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. The link to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Follow me if you wish to learn my secret. Now Playing is edited by Arnie. It's hard work, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you bet. And our shifts are four days long. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. He had some kind of a poison inside him, driving him mad. Now Playing is not affiliated with the producers of these motion pictures. All movies discussed on Now Playing are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. She's not even afraid of the gods, that woman. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. When you're going to kill a god, let someone else do. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Our laws forbid us from watching you go, Ashitaka. Whatever comes to pass now, you are dead to us forever. Farewell. David Keith, you gotta mention David Keith. That's Arnie's favorite. <laughs> or is it, is it Keith David? I can never. Really it is Keith David. Him. Don't call him. David is it Keith, Keith David? Okay. One. Yeah, it, it's, there's a difference. Big yeah. difference between the two guys. I there. know, but I can never keep them straight. No, yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. You always go, which one's white, which one's black. Right? I, I wonder how many times that they've meant to get Keith David or David Keith vice versa, <laughs> and they've actually like, oh, well, this works, so we're just gonna go with it. That happened. I was watching a behind the scenes of one of the movies I was watching that literally happened. The director asked, not not for Keith David, David Keith, but some asked for an actress and got the name wrong and didn't know it until I was walking up the trailer and opened the door. It was like, oh, hi. <laughs> <laughs> and just kept her because he was too embarrassed to say, you're not who I meant. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I wonder if that has happened to Keith David. Although that must might be harder, depending on the part. You're well, like, you, I, I mean, you can't play this part. Maybe they meant all along to have David Keith and they live. <laughs> Could have. I don't feel like that's his purpose as the night. St- Is it the night stalker? Did you just say? I think it's the night walker. Yeah, it probably meant night walker. <laughs> <laughs> just caught that. Yes, Akoto, David Keith, or Keith David, which one? I don't, know, you, you, I don't know, you put David Keith in your notes too, and so... Keith David. Okay. Arnie, 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 Arnie <laughs> what did Arnie think? Get him in on here. Arnie hadn't had coffee when he watched this. <laughs>